0: Rehab cast. The official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center
1: which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with spinal cord
0: injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners. They collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities,
1: schools, and workplaces.
0: Learn more at shepherd.org.
1: Welcome to the 43rd episode of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. In this episode, we've got two swell interviews. First, we're talking with physiotherapy PhD candidate Sarah Suey-Kannan about her work in Finland with a year-long physiotherapy program targeted at seniors. Then we're going to check in with Dr. Brad DeCiano, the medical director of the UPNC Center for Assistive Technology. He'll give us a nuanced view of the role of the ATP in the assistive tech equation. Joining us now in the rehab cast, we have Sarah Suikhanen. She is a physiotherapy Ph.D. student. Uh, She is a clinical physiotherapist and has her master's degree. Uh, She is doing her work uh, in the Faculty of Sport and Health Sciences at the University of Uwaleska in Finland. Uh, So joining us now from Finland, uh, Sarah is here with us to discuss her work, which is on frailty in older adults and the potential of rehabilitation interventions in this population. Thank you for joining us, Sarah.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You bet. Uh, now, this is original research you and your team have published uh, in the journal, and uh, it's entitled "The Effect of a 12-Month Supervised Home-Based Physical Therapy Exercise on Functioning Among Persons with Signs of Frailty." It's a randomized controlled trial, which is uh, a challenge in and of itself in this rehab population and over a year. That is really something else. That's unusual to see a year long intervention like this. We do a lot of uh, interviews for the podcast, obviously publish a lot of different rehab interventions in the journal. I would say it's much more common to see shorter epochs, a month, three months, uh, six months at the outset. You really bit off something here going for a year. Uh, tell us about that and how hard was that to achieve?
2: Yeah, we decided to try have this kind of longer
1: mm-hmm.
2: longer intervention. And we took 12 months and all of it was uh, supervised so every single visit to this uh, participant's home this physiotherapist went there and yeah it was something new i, yeah. I think
1: uh, really uh, good to see and large populations too i mean 300 folks in, enrolled in the in the trial roughly 1, 150 on each side whether kind of getting the the in-home intervention or not um, so doing that over a year i mean that that's a lot of lot of visits back and forth and so forth i, I see the intervention is two uh physiotherapist uh uh visits hour long per week is that right
2: yeah yeah so two visits per per week, and both them were supervised so
1: yeah, the the mind kind of boggles at the coordination and numbers there and so forth. How was this study funded?
2: Uh, this was funded by Social Insurance Institution of Finland. Uh, half of it came from there, and half was this South Karelia Social and Healthcare District.
1: Okay, and I see that the research was conducted in the area uh, of La Perinta, Finland. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Or this is South Karelia is the area. I see. In, okay. in, in Southeast uh, east. It's very
1: close to the Russian border, is that right? Yeah,
2: I think it's like from La Peranda, it's like 30 to 40 kilometers. From okay. Yeah, so it's it's
1: just next to the Russian border. Is this a rural area in particular?
2: There is uh, nine municipalities in this area, and oh, La Peranda so. is the biggest city. But I okay. think in La Peranda it's about 72,000
1: inhabitants. Okay, That's, yeah, that doesn't sound too rural to me. Okay, very good.
2: But the smaller communities are rural <laughs> And this study is targeted
1: at older adults, those over 65, though the uh, the folks that you actually got into the study really quite elderly. Uh, on average, I see 82.2 years plus or minus 6.3, um, most of them women, like it seems like most of these studies, but but a fair 75% uh, women. So uh, significantly elderly population. And looking at this issue of frailty, which is certainly something that's uh, affecting uh all societies, uh, some more than others. As as we live into our older years, thanks to all the available medical interventions in the earlier decades of life, more and more of us are, are getting up there into 80s and 90s and even beyond. And as a result, there's more work to be done in rehabilitation to potentially keep people in their homes. And that that's really what this study is, is centered on. These are folks who are not in institutions, not in different types of residential care facilities or nursing homes, but living in their homes possibly with with some a variety of, of social services is that right
2: yeah they all were living at their own homes someone got some home health care home care but uh, most of them didn't have at the time of enrollment so
1: okay so on average uh, you know folks are getting some level of help through uh, state programs to remain in
2: their homes is that right yeah so and the goal was with this kind of intervention that they could live at their home for so longer with this kind of rehabilitation. The
1: uh, key to enrolling people was this uh, frail questionnaire, kind of looking at different functions that may be declining and, and meet this definition of frailty.
2: Yeah, first we screened this population with the frail questionnaire, mm-hmm. and it was easy, easy to fill, asking about whether they lost weight or feeling exhausted or having problems walking a few hundred meters and so on. And if they get one or more points from that scale, then we did another friendly diagnose with this Fried's frailty phenotype criteria.
1: Y'all did the mini mental status examination. too. I was a little surprised at how low you're willing to go on that number with the enrollment, getting folks uh, with scoring down to 17 yeah. on the MMSE. That's, you know, some significant cognitive impairment in this age group, right?
2: Yeah, and, and we thought it, it's good to have also those who didn't have that good cognition and also mm-hmm. those who had 17. Of course, it may cause some problems with when interviewing, interviewing the participants, but uh, I think the mean was 24, if I remember correctly. On the
1: Well, if I may say so, I do think it's a good thing. I mean, it reflects reality, and uh, we see many rehab studies that seem to be kind of cherry-picking and uh, a particular population that's going to be able to kind of learn the best, the rehab intervention and so forth. And but meanwhile, kind of not really perhaps under underrepresenting and underserving <laughs> those folks with some degree of, of impairment who really do need that coaching and uh, oversight and supervision from from a therapist and so forth. And that really kind of reflects the reality that we live with out there in population health.
2: Yeah, they are also they are still living at their own homes. So mm-hmm. that was also one one key thing.
1: Even if there might be questions about whether that's the most wise thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's it's, the reality. It's the other
2: topic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the intervention as mentioned, uh, you know, to my mind is rather, gargantuan uh for you know i mean sending folks out into the home uh an hour uh twice a week uh for an entire year uh the mind boggles a, a bit at the uh at uh at the achievability of that and now these folks are receiving a variety of social services and i do see that one of the outcomes is hey you know this we're, we're hoping to see here too whether this can kind of certainly uh Help functionally, medically, and so forth, and uh, but ultimately, cost-wise, uh, lessen the need for services overall. It looks like you achieved uh, that, and we'll we'll talk about that. Um, but let's let's talk about the intervention itself. What were the physiotherapists doing with these elders? That was unique, uh, attempting to to prevent falls and, and injuries in, in the home and, uh, and and reduce the severity of frailty.
2: So during this uh, one hour, the basic structure was like f- first warm up, and then uh, about 30 minutes for the minutes of different kind of resistance exercises for the uh, mostly for the lower limbs, and mm-hmm. we used the uh, ankle weights, weight vests, dumbbells, balls to use uh, get some resistance, and then some flexibility exercises, balance exercises with different kinds of static dual task exercises. And uh, also we did a lot of functional exercises. So that kind of uh, everyday life tasks you need to stay at home and live at your own home independently. For instance, walking stairs or or doing laundry, uh, that kind of things.
1: So a lot of practical stuff that, that you might expect, not rocket science necessarily, but things that we know from many other studies are, are key to, to ultimately not losing your footing and falling, you know, the practice and uh, working on that lower extremity strength and coordination and just kind of uh, repetitive strength building and, uh, and resistance exercise. So kind of the bread and butter of, of rehab in that regard, but really getting it done over this expanse yeah. of time, which is something.
2: And yeah, and also for the one year the whole time it was the mm-hmm. thing. So not, maybe not the exercises weren't that uh, special or new or something like that. but uh.
1: Right. Now, there's in terms of your outcomes, there's the FEM, which I think many people uh, listening to this podcast would be familiar with. Uh, also, the short physical performance battery, the SPPB. Yes. Uh, that This one interested me a lot because, in particular, you're talking about how it predicts nursing home uh, admissions uh, as well as all-cause mortality uh tell us about the sppb perhaps we, we should all be using it more
2: yeah so it's a constant three different uh tests it's uh, walking for four meters or 2.44 meters if there's not in- enough space in the homes and uh, then balance test mm-hmm. and then rising up from chair test where you rise five times and uh,
1: and you did get a clinically significant uh, boost uh, in that uh, over the course of this intervention, 1.6 points, I see. Yes. Despite, now that is is important in terms of what its predictors are. I do understand that there is still certainly decline in all the functional measures over the course of the year. Again, this is a quite elderly population of folks on average in their 80s, uh, some presumably beyond as well. You know, uh, it, it would be Asking for a lot for improvement over that course of that year, uh, and uh, or even static. So some decline. The idea is though a slower decline, right?
2: Yeah. So the theme deteriorated in both both groups, but it was less in the, in the, in our physical exercise group. Yeah. Group over the twelve months.
1: And fewer falls. I mean, some falls as would be expected, but but less falls. Yeah. Yeah, the the exercise program is uh, referred to by the mnemonic uh, Otago O T A G O. What is that?
2: It's a it's Australian origin
1: mm-hmm.
2: rehabilitation program. It's I think it's designed for these persons to do it individually or without supervision at their homes, and we use those uh, five key. Lower limbs exercises of that, so it's the knee knee extension and flexion, uh, hip abduction, and also the raising raise to your toes and to your heels. Mm-hmm. Those are like the main exercises of that exercise program.
1: Now, on the the expense uh, front, so ultimately, I mean, this this does appear to be helping. Uh, there's you know uh, uh, on on these measures. And uh, But uh, the intervention itself does have an expense. But I understand when you look at kind of a two-year period, the overall costs are are lower despite the intervention. Is that right?
2: Yeah, or we looked at uh, these 24-month costs. And uh, in frail population, those who were identified as frail at the baseline, Mm -hmm. the costs were similar to this usual care. So even though this expensive exercise was there, these costs were similar. So they used less other health and social care.
1: Now, this work was done prior to the pandemic, and certainly since the pandemic, there's been a lot more interest on you know virtual and telehealth-style therapies and so forth. One does imagine that older adults, in particular this population of folks in their 80s and so forth, are going to have significant challenges with... Uh, with that, I mean, you know, using the devices, logging on, uh, seeing and hearing you know, what people are asking them to do and so mm-hmm. forth, certainly is the safety aspect as well, utilizing the equipment and everything. It, I can definitely see some translation challenges there one could imagine an intervention perhaps where less time from the therapist was involved in terms of maybe they go and set people up or something like that and leave but what are your your thoughts of, about kind of doing things more remotely and and so forth and is that something that you guys have have looked at
2: uh, we didn't look at but uh, i think it's something that should be researched more and and how it's going to be but i think in in our research I, those population in our research i think they really liked that the physiotherapist went to their homes and it was yes. a social event and uh, i think it's an aspect that you cannot uh, forget when you do these kinds of things of course with this pandemic it's different but yeah I, let's hope that it's
1: not too much longer my goodness
2: yeah yeah and and well
1: uh, yeah and the socialization aspect is is huge I mean, I think for older adults in particular yeah the the one on one in person is is very important um, you know ultimately virtual can only do so much now certainly in the, on the level of better than nothing but and it does deserve its 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 research for sure um, and I do imagine there's some patient populations for whom it's going to be superior for others and different clinical problems superior to others and so forth and so on so i know this work is kind of a part of of your phd work and in particular i mean tell us the area of work involves for you
2: it's also okay this uh, this article was about functioning mm-hmm. and uh, i'm also doing about the uh, health-related quality of life and also this costs and usage of uh, healthcare care and social services they're also included in my thesis and uh, yeah and also the effects for the frailty itself very good all right.
1: Well, I, this uh, sounds like uh, uh, it certainly is important work, big work, expensive work, uh, and I think it's important for people, you know, when this type of, of work is done uh, with this much effort, we need to, to learn from that and, and, and take what we can because obviously it's going to be challenging for other folks to, to replicate as well. It's certainly building upon a body of evidence that, you know, many rehab interventions uh in particular, uh, over the long term, you know, payback and spades, uh, what is spent. The challenge, though, is, you know, uh, convincing the, the folks who are shelling out in the first place that <laughs> that it's wise from a social care perspective and, and so forth. And that's why we continue to need this this type of research. So I really appreciate your time with us here today, Sarah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Joining us now on the rehab cast, we have Dr. Brad DeCiano. Dr. DeCiano is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and their department of PM&R. He's also medical director of the UPMC Center for Assistive Technology. He is also medical director of the Human Engineering Research Laboratories there. Dr. DeCiano, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Well, you and your team are looking specifically into the assistive technology professional field and perhaps its importance uh, and relevance, hopefully relevant, uh, given what they do, to the provision of mobility adaptive equipment. You guys have published this uh, original research from your yourself and your colleagues there at the University of Pittsburgh. In the first place, thanks for publishing in the journal.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for highlighting our article.
1: Let's just kind of get started with kind of some some basics here. So it's it's certainly important and and relevant to to justify the members of the rehabilitation team and perhaps the ATP profession is a relatively new one. I, I'm not sure. Can you educate me on that kind of timeline? How long that's been around?
0: Yeah. So the Resna. Published a wheelchair service provision guide, which, in, which really outlines best practice for what occurs during the provision process for a wheelchair or scooter. And part of that recommendation includes, you know, assessment, training, outcome measurement. And part of that process um, also involves, hopefully, certification of professionals to be part mm-hmm. of that process. And Resna also established separate standards of practice for people who can be certified as an ATP. Mm-hmm. And so now that large data sets are available, which has only you know come into play in more recent years in the field of assistive technology, we can now look at the impact of factors like having ATP certification on outcomes of people who use assistive technologies.
1: So the ATP certification comes out of Resna per yeah. se? Mm-hmm. Okay. Are there there other professions that they issue certifications on, or is that the key one or only one?
0: That's the key one related to assistive technology.
1: Okay. Uh, Is this research born out of uh, RESNA, like a RESNA subcommittee or something like that? Or is it more just uh, coming from you and your university research center?
0: This research was funded by NIDILRR through a Uh DRRP grant that we have with NIDILRR. But many of us are involved in RESNA, have been members, and uh, helped develop the wheelchair service provision guide and other resources available um, through RESNA.
1: Okay. Um what's your understanding of the uh, kind of general percentage of mobility equipment that that goes through ATPs in the US versus that that doesn't? That doesn't involve them.
0: Well, part of that depends on Medicare guidelines. Okay. So there are um requirements that some types of equipment, especially when it's customized, to an individual and it's a complex rehab technology. Some of that needs to be evaluated by an ATP. However, there's lots of other uh, durable medical equipment and other rehab technology that doesn't um, have that requirement and and oftentimes isn't uh, involved in a process that involves an, an ATP.
1: And certainly it's a field that's only getting more complex as as more technology comes along. Uh, Certainly that would be one justification for it. Everything would be technically correct and up to date with what's on the market and match for that particular disability and so forth. And that certainly makes sense. Now, as far as the mechanics of this particular project, you guys were kind of using proprietary data from a large company, I I gather. U.S. Rehab, and there are hundreds of of dealers and 1,400 locations. Is that right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, this data is collected by a lot of different providers across the country. Our data set had over 4,700 cases, Hmm. um, and I think about 300 providers specifically contributed to the data set we used for this project.
1: Okay. And and key to it uh, seems to be this FMA questionnaire. Tell us what what that involves.
0: Yeah, FMA stands for functional mobility assessment. It's a way that we measure satisfaction with functional mobility as a result of a person using assistive technology. So it's a multiple item scale that allows us to measure how happy people are in their mobility as it relates to their wheelchair, scooter, allowing them to do those activities. And it was also developed by members of the team who were authors on this paper.
1: You guys were were seeking to kind of match up what, what boosted those scores the most, you know, certainly whether an a- ATP was involved or not, or the type of equipment and those types of things. I guess to cut to the chase here, not to keep it a secret, ATPs are indeed important. And they have some interesting effects on what folks end up with. I, maybe not all expect, or maybe all expect, know, you tell us, but for the most part, it, it does seem that folks who have an ATP involved uh, for one thing, they're certainly getting more custom wheelchairs that are perhaps more appropriate for them, in particular something that uh, requires that kind of next level of, of service of matching up their body type, in particular disability, with the equipment available versus something standard off the shelf. I suppose that makes sense. Tell us about what, you know, I guess is that aspect of it not, not surprising? And I see that there are some other details beyond that in terms of kind of the the higher grade, i.e. group three and, and four wheelchairs, and, and tell us about how those are, are different from some of the others.
0: Sure. So as you can imagine, there's lots of patient level factors that are related to the ultimate FMA score. So we we define a lot of different patient characteristics and factors that play into making a difference in the ultimate FMA score. But the biggest predictor in our study in determining what the FMA score for a user was, was the device type. Hmm. So which which makes a lot of sense clinically, right? If if the person has has a high quality device, their FMA score is likely to be higher. If if they have a lower quality device, it's going to be less likely to be a higher score. However, involvement of ATP was also a key factor in determining FMA scores. So when an ATP was involved in the assessment, the FMA score was higher. And like you said, also ATP involvement in the assessment was associated with having more custom devices. So that would include custom ultralight manual wheelchairs and the higher end power wheelchairs. Mm. Group three power wheelchairs are those that we think of as complex rehab technology or power wheelchairs that we prescribe to our typical rehab populations like people with spinal cord injury, stroke, brain injury, for example. And group four power wheelchairs have even more features that allow them to perform functions like standing, Um, in the chair and also have some features for outdoor use.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier that that Medicare actually requires the ATP to be involved in in some of these. Uh, Are private insurers doing that too, the commercial insurance plans?
0: Most private insurers do follow Medicare guidelines, Mm -hmm. yes. And did I
1: read this right? It looks like ATPs, they aren't just kind of upselling everybody, you know, regardless, you know, the most advanced thing. I mean, actually, if an ATP is involved in the assessment of mobility aid, patient is, there's an increased proportion of folks who end up with no mobility aid, as in the ATP is saying nothing is necessary. Is, is that right?
0: The overall assessment is to just determine what type of mobility device a person might need. It could be anything—walker, crutch, you know, wheelchair, scooter, all the way up to a power wheelchair. So, what we were looking at was sort of cross-sectional data where somebody came in with a specific type of device, and we were determining the outcome of them with the subsequent device that they mm-hmm. received after the assessment. And so future work that we're going to carry out is to look at what determines functional mobility assessment data longitudinally. Mm -hmm. If we look at people over time as their needs change, their mobility changes, the types of devices change that they use over time, what factors play into that?
1: Okay. And then, in terms of you know the ATP field and so forth, I, I suppose they, they ought to be pleased by by this uh, research project. Is there a, an association outside of Resna for ATPs? Is, it, is is Resna it? Have you started to get some feedback yet from this?
0: The main organization that, like we said oversees the certification process for ATPs is RESNA, but many people who have ATPs are involved in a lot of other, you know, professional organizations. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, one of the first studies to look at ATP as part of the process of evaluation in terms of outcomes. So, you know, we're hoping that dissemination methods like this podcast, you know, can get the word out about the study.
1: Very good. Very good. So you mentioned some kind of the next level work there uh, being planned. I know you you and your group in particular, you have a strong interest in this technology generally, but you do a lot with spina bifida, per se, in the pediatric population. Would you mind telling us about some of your recent work in in that area?
0: Sure. So this study was, was part of a larger grant that involves multiple aims. So in this larger NIDILRR grant that we have currently, we're conducting a scoping review to look at current policies around complex rehab technology and novel service delivery models that exist. We're looking at ways to standardize the assessment process and incorporate outcome measures that can kind of be standardized across different sites Mm -hmm. so that Better protocols can be developed and better documentation processes. And we're also looking at existing data sets that exist on CRT. So lots of different suppliers and organizations collect data in different ways. And we're hoping that by examining different data sets and comparing them, we can come up with more standardized approaches so that if people start collecting data in similar ways, we have better, larger data sets to leverage for future research. And then we have certainly lots of other research going on in different areas. Like you said, work related to the spina bifida registry, also work related to wireless technologies and mobile health and a variety of other areas in assistive technology.
1: What are some of the biggest needs or problems in in the assistive technology world right now? I, I mean, to my knowledge, I mean, the main buckets might might be, you know, like getting people the, the right equipment that they need and also perhaps cutting down or eliminating adaptive equipment waste that is out there, things that are Bought, purchased, prescribed that are unnecessary, not used, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, those are, are things that, to my knowledge, are, are problems out there. Or do you agree? Or are there other, other big, big problems you would add to that list?
0: Yeah, I agree. Matching people to the right technology is really important. And that's part of why Resna created ATP certifications was to make sure that the person's own needs are really considered and a careful assessment is done so that when we procure equipment for people, it's carefully matched so that it's not ultimately abandoned. But I think even when we do match equipment to people correctly, the procurement process takes a really long time. There's multiple steps. The the funding process and documentation process is very complicated. Mm. And so it can take a really long time to get people the equipment they need. This is really important for people with conditions that are progressive, like ALS, for example, who need equipment quickly. So we're always looking at ways to improve that process by standardizing processes, improving healthcare policy so that we can ultimately get equipment into the hands of people faster uh, so that we can you know, improve their outcomes. And one of the ways that we can do that is with electronic medical record interoperability. So I see a lot of potential for technologies as they're developing to speed the process of documentation so that we move away from paper-based and fax-based systems. Mm. And we can do things directly from our electronic medical records to get people the equipment they need.
1: Fascinating. All right, Dr. Deciano from the University of Pittsburgh, thank you for your time today on the Rehab Cast and for elucidating for our audience some of the details and considerations surrounding this important study of the ATP world and what that adds to the prescription of mobility aids. And I thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And that'll do it for this
1: 43rd episode of the Rehab Cast. Please share the podcast with colleagues, and please be sure to check out our next month's edition, number 44.